Okay, good morning everyone. My name is Carol Soon. I am Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies and Associate Director of the Asia Journalism Fellowship. Welcome to the Asia Journalism Forum that is funded by Temasek Foundation Connects. The forum is a two-day program that is part of the 12-week Asia Journalism Fellowship hosted by IPS. We have with us today journalists and editors from newsrooms across Asia, some policy makers as well as scholars doing research in journalism and media. Now, someone asked me about the theme for the forum, why power shifts in journalism. Now, for the past few years, one word has been used way too many times, in my opinion. And the word is disruption. Disruption to the economy, disruption to businesses, disruption to media, the media industry. Now, I personally avoid using that word because it has a negative connotation. It makes us look at the glass as half empty and it puts us on the defensive. So this forum is about stories, stories of how little-known people with little resources do what they do to make a mark in a changing media landscape. This forum is about stories of how individuals and communities use journalism to make a difference in the world they live in. And this forum is about how incumbents, oftentimes comfortable, comfortably set in their ways, rise to the occasion. Hence, power shifts in journalism focuses on the people, their strategies, and the impact they make. This forum is open to media coverage, and video recordings will be uploaded onto the IPS website during the course of the day. Do talk about it and share your insights using the hashtags you see on the screen. Now, the Chief Executive of Tamasic Foundation Connects, Mr. Lim Hock Chuan, would give, would give us his welcome remarks, following which Mr. Janadas Devan, Director of IPS, will give his remarks. Mr. Lim, please. Uh, distinguished speakers, ladies and gentlemen, a very good morning to all of you. So I'm Lim Hock Chuan, I'm the Chief Executive of Tamasic Foundation Connects. So first of all, let me uh, welcome all of you to the Asian Journalism Forum and to our overseas uh, friends, a very warm welcome to Singapore. The Asia uh, Journalism Fellowship Program was started in 2009 with the aim to create greater understanding and networks of cooperation among journalists across Asia. Ten years on, we are now very proud to say that we have more than 150 fellows who are part of our alumni. The Asia Journalism Forum series has been the highlight of the fellowship program since 2010. And this serves as a platform to explore key issues and media trends and media trends. Over the years, the forum has covered pertinent facets of media development and issues of the day, ranging from new media, fake news, sustainable independent journalism, political change, and China's rise and always with a good mix of praxis included. This year, the theme is on power shift in journalism, impact and implication. This is especially an uh, important topic for us in this time when every industry, including the media, is facing disruption by changes brought about by technology. What is journalism shaping up to be? 
How do journalists continue to exert impact are questions that need to be probed further. So we have a lineup of very distinguished speakers for the forum today, and we look forward to an engaging session. So this forum is supported by Tamasic Foundation Connect since uh, 2017. We are a Singapore-based charity, and we seek to build bridges and partnership, and promote dialogue and understanding across international markets and communities. In so doing, we hope to promote an outward-oriented and non-insular worldview that appreciates the interconnectedness and the interdependencies uh, we have in this region. This will allow all of us, Singaporeans and all our friends in ASEAN, uh, to be embedded in the growth and development in the region and beyond. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very happy to be a part of this forum today. The forum is a good platform to build personal and professional networks among journalists. And I sincerely hope that the friendship we started today can be sustained at the individual level and the connection we establish today can last through our professional life and beyond. And on this note, I'd like to wish all of us a very fruitful forum today. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of IPS, welcome to this conference or forum, uh, which is entitled Power Shifts in Journalism, Impact and Implications. Um, I'll keep my remarks brief. Um, let me begin by asking, what are the main challenges uh, that prompts a title like this? What are the power shifts uh, that uh, you face? Looking at the description of your conference, um, I would agree that there are two main challenges. One, what I would call a crisis of relevance. What is the how, to what extent is the model of a neutral objective press uh, possible um, in the next decade or century? Two, a crisis of economics. The fact is nobody has quite figured out a way to monetize journalism, let alone quality journalism, uh, in the age of the internet. First, crisis of relevance. It is worth recalling that when the famous First Amendment of the US Constitution was drafted, calling for guaranteeing the freedom of the press, the press as we know it today didn't exist. The press in the late 18th century and through much of the 19th century in the US and Europe was not objective, it was not neutral. All the papers and all the pamphlets that existed were partisan in nature. They belonged to one or another faction or party. The notion of a free press that we associate with objective, neutral reporting, independent reporting, is actually a very recent history. It began in different ways in many different countries. In, um, in England, uh, in, in the one, uh, uh, in, in something I'm familiar with, um, it began with, um, uh, slowly with C.P. Scott in the Manchester Garden uh, pro uh, promulgating an, a, a notion of a press that is free of partisan interests. And in America, actually, it was even much more recent, um, 1930s, 1940s, when the Hearst newspapers were powerful in the United States, the press wasn't uh, objective and independent. It was partisan. Um, and so the notion of um, 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 an objective press, the kind that we associate with, say, the BBC, you know, uh, you are, though you may be paid by 
funded by a, a government, you are objective, you are free, you are independent. Um, um, or at least, you know, that's the that's the image. Uh, the notion that you know the editorial side, um, the leaders, the opinion side should be separated from the news side. These are all very recent vintage, and this model has become challenged for a variety of reasons. Firstly, because the online space has enabled the proliferation of different kinds of uh, um, of media that is devoted to particular segments of the population. And also because of political developments. You look at America, the, um, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, um, the television landscape was dominated by three networks, ABC, CBS, NBC. And everyone in America knew who the anchors of these um, uh, programs were. You know, everyone knew who Walter Cronkite was. Uh, the whole world knew who Walter Cronkite was. Um, now, and, and you know, 80%, um, of Americans as recently as 19, the late, early 1980s when I first uh, arrived in the US uh, to do my the studies, universities, um, um, the 80% of Americans watch the, the nightly news, 6 o'clock, 6.30, wow. 80% of Americans will be tuning in the different time zones to watch the nightly news, which means there was a common platform for the bulk of the population to meet. That is no longer the case. Um, firstly, hardly anyone in America can name uh, the anchors of the three uh, networks. First of all, the networks are not what they used to be. There are many more, there's a proliferation of news outlets. And what's worse, um, the news outlets are fractured along political lines. If you have a particular viewpoint, it happens to be conservative, um, um, right-wing, you watch Fox News. Um, you have a different cast of mind, you watch MSNBC. Um, there is no common meeting space. A great crisis, a considerable crisis occurs, people don't agree on a common set of facts. And this is, is happened in America, it, it hasn't happened to the same extent in many other countries, but it is probably something that uh, all of our societies will face, the challenge that all of our societies will face. The second challenge, um, the one of um, economic, the crisis of economics, is I think in my view something much more fundamental because if your publications can't survive economically, there is nothing that you can do. Um, and and um, um, different jurisdictions are facing this problem in different ways. Um, in Singapore, for example, the mainstream media are actually not lacking readers or viewers. You look at the numbers, whether it's Straits Times or Chapao, on the print side, uh, or you look at uh, um, MediaCore on, on the television side, their viewership and their readership has not declined. Uh, if you include both their online numbers as well as their print numbers, um, they have also actually remained more or less stable over the past 10 years, and the various surveys indicate this. People are actually reading them. The problem is it's very difficult to monetize um, uh, stuff that happens online. And it's a serious problem. Um, if you can't survive economically, um, you, you know, how are you going to produce the news? How are you going to fund quality journalism? Um, quality journalism is very expensive. Um, you, know, you have to have a newsroom. They have to have trained people. You have to give them adequate salaries. Otherwise, you know, they will leave. Um, and it's a heavy investment. And, you know, actually, you know, people grumble about political uh, censorship. Actually, the worst, most effective form of censorship is economic censorship. 
Uh, you, don't, you can't survive, you can't report. So these are major challenges. I really don't know if anybody knows how to solve um, the second challenge in particular. Um, um, sometimes you get lucky. The New York Times is now doing extremely well. Washington Post is doing extremely well. CNN's numbers have all improved. And there's one reason in common, which is Donald Trump. There's a huge, sizable population in America gets up every morning and wants to know what's the latest Donald Trump has said. So the New York Times circulation has jumped by a worldwide circulation, uh, has jumped by about a million. So that's quite tremendous. CNN's numbers also have improved. But I don't know how long this is going to last. And I don't know how much um, this online, actually most of the, the increase in circulation is online, contributes to their uh, bottom line. It seems to be doing better now than it used to. Um, but whatever it is, this is a venture and a, and a, and a profession that is worth saving. Um, and uh, I read um, the, the description of the next panel, or rather panel two. Both history and contemporary times have demonstrated how journalists have mainstream, from mainstream media and independent media check those in power, uncover the truth, and provide a voice to the marginalized. In so doing, they transform communities, societies, and government, sometimes at much risk and cost to themselves. Who are these journalists? What gives them the courage to break free from institutional restrictions and the shackles of control? And what difference have they made? I think these are very important questions. And so long as it is worthwhile, so long as quality journalism provides a utility, provides this kind of service, I think it is worth spending time and effort studying how we can overcome these challenges. And I have no doubt, actually, that we shall overcome these challenges. I hope you have a successful conference and fruitful discussions for the rest of the day. Thank you very much. Thank you, Director. So um, now uh, we have our keynote speaker, Mr. Sri Srinivasan. He's a co-founder of DigiMentors and a social media guru. He's also a leading consultant, speaker, and trainer for nonprofits, corporations, startups, and executives. Now, he is a man who has worn many hats, no pun intended. Um, he was a professor at the Columbia Journalism School for 20 years, and he was also chief digital officer of the City of New York and the Metropol uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art. So um, we welcome him to give us his keynote address, and perhaps from his speech or talk, we will get some ideas on how to perhaps solve the crisis of relevance and economics that Janada spoke about. Sri, welcome. Hello, everyone. I'm going to give you a task just before we start. If you can all pull out your phones, and uh, if you're on LinkedIn, please download the LinkedIn app. If you already have the LinkedIn app, just pull it out while I just get set up here in just one second. So if you don't have LinkedIn or you don't have the LinkedIn app, that's okay. But if you have it, it'll be great if you can put it on your, on your phone and download it while we're waiting. And if you've already done that, please share what's happening here today and use the hashtag that we're using, AJF2018, and tell your friends what you're seeing here and what you're, what you're experiencing. I think they will love to hear from you and see, uh, see what's being discussed here. And if you are lacking uh, something to, to share, I have, uh, I have posted on 
my, uh, on my Twitter feed a link to all, my all, all the um, social media tips that I have. So you can go and grab that and just retweet that if you like. So I'm just going to go in here and I hope you are all... How many of you have downloaded the LinkedIn app already? How many of you have it? Would you just wave if you have it? That's great. So as long as somebody at your table has it, I think you'll be okay and you'll, you'll be able to uh, share and, and see what we're going to be doing today. Uh, first, I want to just thank uh, Carol and Alan from uh, the, uh, the, the organizers of this session and the conference. I'm so grateful to be here at the forum. And I want to uh, thank Mr. Limhak Twan and Mr. Janadas Devan for uh, their remarks. I think they've given us something serious to think about and, and talk about today. So you will see on the screen that I'm just showing you, this is the tweet I sent out, which has all my tips on here. So if you go on to Twitter and share it, you can get that out uh, uh, to everybody. But I want to tell you that this is my first time in Singapore in 30 years. The last time I was here was in 1988. And I had come to Singapore in part to buy this awesome boombox. This was the state-of-the-art cutting edge that I could afford. There was no CD player on it, even though CD players existed. But it did have what we call a double cassette recorder. Those of you old enough in the room, you know what that means, right? You could actually put a cassette on one side, and what could you do on the other? You could record it. It was like magic. And uh, we came, I had gone to high school in Fiji, and I graduated from Fiji, and my father and I were going to India to drop me off at Delhi University at St. Stephen's College. And on my way, we of course stopped in Singapore, and we went, we only went to one store, Mustafa, and did all the shopping there, and we bought this, and I was the coolest guy at Delhi University because I had this in 1988. And so I went back to Mustafa yesterday, and this looks like a scene from an airport, but you might know that this is actually how they keep all the bags of people going to the airport. That's how popular it is. And I got the feeling that at any moment they will kind of catch you if you're trying to do some kind of uh, nefarious actions there. And I, I've posted a whole series of tweets here in a story about Twitter and my visit to Singapore. So if you're on Twitter, you can look at it. If you're not on Twitter, that's of course fine as well. So we're now ready to do our little exercise with LinkedIn. So if you'd all pull out your phones and go to the LinkedIn app. And when you're on the LinkedIn app, you will see here on the screen at the bottom, you'll see the, two, the icon of the two heads at the bottom. Does everybody see that? Yes, at the bottom of the screen, you have it on your phone. And then look at the top and it says find nearby. So if you have that on your right there, find nearby. And look what happens. All these people start showing up on the screen here. It's kind of like magic. So I can go in, and Tanchi and I are now connected. Natalie and I are connected. You can see who else is on here. Adil and I are connected, Yvonne, etc. Right. So you're starting to see people on your phone. Does everyone see how this works? And the beauty of it is that this is a new way of connecting people. And the connections we have are not just the physical connections we get at a conference like this, but also the importance of 
building your digital community, and that's what we're doing here. So please go ahead, and I can see James up there and others, so just uh, connect. Some of you are worried about your privacy uh, settings, and you're wondering, is this a way to pick up people at bars and things like that? It is not. This is run entirely through Bluetooth, so that means that they have to be on LinkedIn, you have to be on LinkedIn, they have to have the app open, and they have to be on this page. And most of us are not ever doing this, so you don't have to worry about your privacy in that sense. Of course, lots of other issues around privacy, but not this particular one. So I showed you that to emphasize the importance of LinkedIn. I believe LinkedIn is the most valuable and underappreciated of all the social networks. And people aren't using it enough because they're so focused on Twitter, Instagram, and uh, all the other platforms, which I myself are also focused on. So I want to make a plea that we all use LinkedIn. I believe every 15-year-old in the world should have a LinkedIn account and connect and learn how you build and nurture your connections going forward. I am going to share some, some uh, kind of big picture thoughts about the world of uh, uh, social and, and, and media and where things are changing and how they're changing. And then we're gonna have a conversation up here with our moderator and you'll meet her in a few minutes. I wanted to make sure you have my presentation and the slides from my presentation, which I'm constantly updating. So I hope you will uh, either get the link from the Twitter feed or you can see this giant QR code that you can use. So if you have an iPhone, you can just pick up the phone and point the camera at the QR code and you get the presentation on your phone. So you can do that. If you have an, iPhone, if you have an Android, then you can use the Google app to uh, use the lens setting in the Google app to download the, uh, the, the tool as well. In East Asia and Southeast Asia, we use QR codes in a big way because of WeChat and other platforms use QR codes, but in America, no one uses QR codes. And that all changed last, um, last October when Apple made it possible for us to use uh, the QR code right in the phone itself without downloading an app. And that's one of the big picture lessons for today. The importance of the tools becoming easier to use. It's not just that the, these tools exist, but can we as consumers use them and understand them easily. And that's something that's gonna be very important going forward. Of all the things you see on the screen, perhaps the most useful thing I can do is invite you to my closed Facebook group. I have about 8,000 journalists and others uh, who are interested in digital all in one place and sharing tips and ideas. So if you have a question about digital media or social, you post it on there, someone's awake somewhere in the world and they'll answer your questions for you. So please ask to join it. You can just search Sri's Advanced Social and you'll find it there. And my Twitter is Sri and SriNet is Instagram. And again, we're using AJF 2018 to get the word out on everything we're doing. Whenever I speak, I always start with ABC. Always be charging your phone. And I hope you have a battery pack. I bought one at Mustafa yesterday. And uh, I'm a big fan of always having battery packs because journalists need to be able to communicate. And one day, we'll solve the problem of the batteries, right? That uh, our grandchildren will not believe that grown adults were on their hands and knees at airports looking for juice. And we'll solve that. But for now, you, you, need a, uh, you need to carry around battery packs. I also like this one because it has two slots, so I can make friends at airports, which is kind of nice. 
Second is always be connecting. Connect with people when you don't need them so that they're there when you need them. This is an uh, important skill, I think, that we all need to have. You're going to see speaker after speaker up here. When you see them speak, just connect with them on LinkedIn or Twitter or wherever they're comfortable so that you're, they're there for you. And I'll return to that mo point in a moment. And then finally, always be collecting is about using your phone as a collection device the way many of you have been doing. If you see an interesting slide, take a photograph so that you have it. And this is where I want to talk a little bit about my phone. And I have a, a phone here, as you can see. Oops, sorry. Uh, the, I, I'm, I'm presenting my, my session today off my phone, as you can see. And uh, I believe that uh, it's really important for all of us to use our phones for creation of content, not just consumption. So I created this entire presentation on my phone also to make the point to all of you that we as creators of content need to be where our audience is. Our audience is on their phone all the time, but we are creating content on these beautiful laptops with two monitors, sometimes three monitors. That doesn't mean you don't use them, but how do we use them in kind of smarter ways is something that I'd like you to think about. The, the folks who've been, who were here last night have heard me describe all of these ideas so far, and uh, I ask you to bear with me while I just, just do that to make sure that we're all on the same page. And this, again, is a description of how you find that LinkedIn connection, and I know many of you have done that already, which is wonderful. Now, you heard a very nice description of my work from Carol, but what she didn't tell you is that I lost two jobs in 12 months. And you know how they say adversity builds character? Having lost two jobs in 12 months, my character is amazing. I have uh, learned a lot, and my, uh, my worldview has changed about what's happening. So when people talk about the changes in media, I have lived through them. Even though I had one job for 21 years and the other two jobs in five years, I changed two jobs and uh, the other two jobs. So what I tell people is that we are in a world where the changes that have happened in the last 10 years in media are going to be bigger, more forceful, and faster in the next five years than we saw in the previous 10, which is really scary because so much has changed. And what we need to do as people who are thinking about, about all of this is make sure that our brands and our companies and our, uh, our services as journalists and media companies are very, are very strong and we also need to figure out the financial part of this, as you, uh, you heard the director say. So as we're thinking about that, I want to tell you what I did with my job loss. I went onto Facebook and said, I lost my job. Tell me what to do next. And I gave people a form to fill in, a Google form. And uh, 1,400 people filled in this form. And some had very good ideas, and some had terrible ideas. Uh, and then I was followed around on TV and all of this stuff. So again, the QR code is there. If you hold your phone up, you can take a picture of it or download the presentation as well. And what I learned from that is the importance of connecting with people and building that network in your lives. So we're going to do a little exercise right now. Very quick. It's going to take us maybe 60 seconds at most. If you'd all pull out your phones again, think about someone in your life who, if you had uh, a, a job situation go bad, who would you reach out to? So if you could just think of that person and pull them up on your phone, either on Twitter or uh, WhatsApp or text message or email. Can you all do that, please, on your phones? And I'm going to do the same thing. 
And we're going to write to this person and say something. You can say anything you like. You can say, hi, thinking of you. Uh, maybe you're writing to your boss, your girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife. Uh, you can say, I love you. Well, maybe not to your boss, but you can write that to other people, unless your boss is in the room and understands why you're saying that. So I'm going to do this. So everybody take 60 seconds and write a sentence to someone in your life. So please do that. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to do that as well right here. All right, and just send it, and I'm done. If you're done, just kind of wave if you're finished, okay? So just write something. So if someone's willing to tell me what they wrote, that'd be nice. James, do you want to tell us who you wrote to and roughly what you said? You don't have to be exact. Okay, good. Anybody else? Anybody else want to tell us what they wrote? So here's something that's about to happen in this room if it hasn't happened already. Somebody's going to get a note saying, are you okay? Why? Because they'll, be, they'll think you've been kidnapped or something's happened. Why are you writing something out of the blue, right? That's sort of the way we are in, in our world of, of, of what we do is that we reach out to people only when we need something. So I encourage you to build this habit of connecting with people when you don't need them so that, that you, you, know, you have them when you need them. And for the professors in the room, you know how this goes, right? An, a, a former student will write to you out of the blue, hi, I've applied for a fellowship. I need a 10-page reference. I need it yesterday. And please send it right away. And you're like, my god, I barely remember you. And I have to do this, right? So let's change the way we connect with the world. Let's take that time to do it. Now, as we're talking about everything we're, you're going to hear today, I want to show you what I think is the most important thing that I can share with you. And that's this particular quote from Les Hinton. Les Hinton's the former publisher of the Wall Street Journal. And he said that the scarcest resource of the 21st century is human attention. And you could tweet at him right now and say, at Les Hinton, we're talking about you at AJC, hashtag AJF2018. And that way you can uh, reach out to him. This is a way for you to connect with him before you need something or you want something from him. Build that into your practice of what you're doing and you will be successful. I want to share with you some ideas around the way we're telling stories and connecting in media today. And that'll help set the stage for our conversation in a few minutes. The most important idea, I think, is that whatever we're doing is it's about storytelling. And we shouldn't lose sight of that as we think about our relevance and our business models and everything else. There's a, a wonderful author named Priya Parker in New York, Priya, P-R-I-Y-A Parker, at Priya Parker, who's written a book uh, called The Art of Gathering. Why do we gather? in the middle of a digital world. Why are we here? Why couldn't we have just met on Google Hangouts or Skype? Because there's a power of gathering. And what she says is, whenever you start an event, don't start with logistics. But that's what we always do. I always start with logistics, as you saw with my LinkedIn. And what she says is she went to a funeral where everybody was crying, and a man got up, and everyone was ready for the ceremony to begin. And the first thing he said is, 
Whoever has the blue Mazda, you need to move it, your lights are on, you know, that kind of thing. The bathrooms are over here and there. Everybody was ready to hear a story about the man who had died. Instead, they heard logistics. So whenever you're working, think about stories and what we do. So I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story about New York City in 1981. How many of you have been to New York City? Would you raise your hand? A lot of you. That's great. Now, a more scary question for all of you. Who here was born after 1981? Would you please stand up if you were born after 1981? For the rest of us, this is how we're going to feel old. Look at this. Okay, keep standing. Uh, who was born after 85? 85? Keep standing if you're born after 85. 86? 1990? 1990? 95? Okay, so 1990, would you just stand again, please? Everybody born after 1990. There you go. Wow. Okay, so these are the future, right? These are the people also about to take our jobs. Watch them. So thank you guys for uh, listening to us old people here. So New York, as you know, is not exactly the safest city in the world, though we like to say the safest big city in the world. That means we only have about 500 murders. And uh, in 1981, it was much scarier. And a man moved to New York City, and he had to write to his roommate to say he is going to come on this certain date. In those days, there was no Twitter, no Facebook, no email, no fax. So what did he do? He wrote a letter to his new roommate, and he went to the apartment, and he started knocking, and there was no roommate there. He did it for several hours. He got so tired, he went into the back of the alley in the building, took his suitcase, and he slept on that suitcase that first night in New York. 27 years later, he became president of the United States. That was the first night of Barack Obama in New York City. How many of you have heard that story before? Very few people, almost nobody, right? A couple of people. What does that tell you about, uh, about Barack Obama and his character? But imagine all of us and how we would treat somebody if we saw them knocking on the door in New York in 1981. Or we'd say, oh, that's the future president. Let me help you, sir. Or if you saw a man sleeping on a suitcase in an alley, you wouldn't say, that is the next president of the United States. Let me go and help him. No, you'd call the police, right? And there is a parallel here to the world of media today and social media in particular. We are all looking and doing not what people would do there, but we're looking at people and seeing how many followers they have on social media and judging people based on that. And I think that's a big mistake, right? So you'll say, this person has 500 followers, so it's not important. This person has 100,000 followers, is really important. And I urge you not to have that uh, kind of uh, outlook on social. Judge people for who they are and what they're doing and what value they bring rather than what you're seeing them do or how many followers they have. Social is also about visuals. You'll never forget this Obama story but the picture will make sure you never forget the Obama story. Social media is also about moments, about small moments where you can uh, try to tell a story without trying to tell the entire story. And that's important in the work we're doing. And social is also about trust. The reason you heard some positive news also about the media in, in the remarks earlier is because some people trust the media more than ever before and some people distrust it more than ever before. And we're seeing that clash in everything we're doing and seeing in American media today. So how do we make sure we have better trust and earn the trust of the work we do? Social media is about relationships. 
about how do we connect with people, when do we connect, what are we sharing. And social is about generosity. I came up with three attributes of a leader on social media. And there are many leaders in the room, and those people born after 1990 will be leaders shortly. And the three attributes I came up with for today's media leader is generosity, confidence, and transparency. If you have generosity, transparency, and confidence, you're going to do great in this new digital world. And what you can, you can guess uh, what they mean, generosity, Talk about other people than yourself. Don't just keep posting about you. Be open and talk about what else is happening. Social media is also about transparency. So you're clear about what you're posting. And then being confident, because you come from a place where you have that kind of confidence. And finally, social media is about people. This is absolutely critical in everything you're doing and thinking about, that it's people that make this work. In my new life as a social media consultant, I work with some big organizations and some small organizations, things like the UN Refugee Agency and the Louvre in Abu Dhabi and the Global Teacher Prize, where we give one teacher in the world a million dollars, K through 12 teacher, a million dollars. The contest runs through for this year through September 23rd, so another few days. It's globalteacherprize.org. I say to all of them what I also say to some restaurants that I work with on social media with, that it's all about people. It's about making sure that you're telling the stories of the staff that you have, of the people you're writing about, the stakeholders in your work. And I say the same thing in the media organizations I work with today as well, that social and today's world is all about people. So before I um, go to uh, I ask our, uh, our colleague to come up and share some thoughts. I want to leave you with the dirty secret of social media. And if you watch very carefully, you'll see there's a second slide as well. Everybody understand this, right? So we think that social media is so easy and, uh, and so easy to do and so easy to execute, but it's not. It's really difficult. And what that means is that we have to work hard to be seen and understood in the world that we are in. The Global Teacher Prize gives, as you heard, a million dollars to a single teacher. And several people ask me, why do you give a million dollars to one teacher? Why not give $100,000 to 10 teachers, $50,000 to 20 teachers, et cetera? And the founder of this has a simple answer. He says, because it's a million dollars, you'll remember this prize. And that's that going back to the sense of how do we get attention to everything we're doing. So I think that's something that we all need to be thinking about. So with that, I'm going to pause and we're going to uh, go to a conversation up here. Thanks very much. Thank you, Sri. Um, please join me in welcoming Farah onto the stage. Um, Farah is the chairperson for this session. She is deputy chief editor of English Current Affairs with Media Corp, and her team produces the weekly English Current Affairs program, Insight for China News Asia. Thank you. 
Thank you very much. Uh, it's been really, really engaging listening to you and being introduced to you earlier, Sri. Um, I know everyone has a lot of questions, and I was personally intrigued. I mean, I learned something new today. Um, I mean, he can do his slides on his phone, and I'm going to try it immediately. I've downloaded Google Slides. Um, and I did that LinkedIn uh, check, and I think we connected with quite a number of you in the room as well. Um, but earlier as well, when you were talking um, about social and storytelling, and you made everyone stand up as well and see how many millennials we have in this room, um, increasingly as well, we wanted to talk a bit about um, millennials. Um, how are we actually going to be reaching out to them besides storytelling merely? Because here in Asia, a lot of the media companies uh, talk about creating new platforms to reach out to them, uh, creating new apps, um, and, or should we be actually going to where the millennials are? What's your advice on reaching out to millennials from the journalist's point of view? Yeah, thank you, and uh, we will talk about the millennials as if they're not in the room, okay? So we'll, <laughs> we'll just say that in America, we're obsessed with millennials. And another term we use is digital native versus digital immigrant. And I'm a digital immigrant because I was uh, not born in uh, the technology world. You saw my boombox and how excited I was. And um, I think that media organizations are doing two things incorrectly or uh, not as well as they could. The first is that they're chasing the millennials in a way that they believe for the sake of the organization, they need millennials only to do the work and that the millennials understand all the technology. They know the technology, doesn't mean they understand it. Uh, because they're born into it, they don't really study it or use it as much. And this is not a generalization, this is, I'm generalizing, of course. So that's one issue in how they deal with them inside the organization itself. The second is, they are not doing the stories that millennials care about, right? We have this understanding that millennials don't like the news or not interested in the news, it's not true. There's more news being created and consumed than ever before. It's just that the way it's being presented is not where it should be. There's an essay by Damon Kiesow, who's D at D-K-I-E-S-S-O-W on Twitter, and he wrote this essay where he says his opening sentence is devastating. He said, millennials love the news, they just don't love you, the legacy news organization. Meaning that we cover things that they may not be interested in, or the way we cover it, the way we reflect, we don't reflect their lives. And in America, it's a big problem. So I'm gonna to speak to the millennials in the room in the following way. In America, we talk a lot about people on TV, for example, but there's a woman named Lily Singh, who some of you might know, she's also known as Superwoman, and she is the, like the top, uh, one of the top YouTube uh, folks on TV. And every American who is following pop culture will know some of her work uh, if they're younger, but won't know the work of the older TV folks that we cover. Vice, you know, there are other examples like that as well. So I'm not saying we should stop doing what we're doing, but let's reflect that. And the best example I can give you, and this I talked about yesterday, is a newsletter called The Skim, S-K-I-M-M which I recommend to everybody. It's a newsletter aimed at millennial women. And I'm not a millennial woman, but I read it every day. And we brought them to the Met and said, teach us, how are you so good at, news at email? 
Why are people opening your emails? And they talked about the tone, the way in which they wrote it. And when you hear millennial women news, you'll think fashion or um, beauty and stuff like that. Instead, it's hard news, but told in a way that appeals to young people. So I think it's good that people are trying new tools and things, but at the same time, let's go where the millennials are, let's work with them without alienating our older audience, which is also important in what we're trying to do. Thanks a lot. Now, any questions so far? Anyone has questions for three? Surely, everyone must be dying to ask questions. No? Ravi? You need a microphone? Ravi needs no introduction. Introduction. Uh, I'm, a f uh, I'm a writer with the Straits Times. Uh, Sri, uh, fortunate to know your father quite well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, now, uh, you heard uh, uh, Janadas Devan uh, talk about the New York Times gaining a million readers, and uh, he attributed a lot of it to the Trump effect. Uh, do you uh, agree that it's entirely Trump that's doing it, or are they doing other things that are quite smart and uh, um, uh, uh, that are, uh, uh, you know, that's helping them uh, grow this audience? Thank no, you. Thank you. I, I think the, the New York Times is a wonderful case study for all of us to think about the old gray lady, as they were called, and how they've transformed themselves. I think their Trump effect is certainly part of their, their success. In America, it is seen as a, uh, a kind of your, that you believe in democracy by subscribing to the Washington Post or the New York Times. That's, that's the state we have reached today, is that it's seen as a, as a way of being uh, almost like somebody who cares about democracy, and that's how you do it. Even the Washington Post slogan you may have seen is that democracy dies in darkness, like really, scary and powerful. Uh, the New York Times, I think, is doing uh, amazing work on multiple digital platforms and dif different ways of storytelling. And they are trying new technologies. They're hiring people who have new skills in data and da visual journalism. Uh, they're hiring um, videographers and social media folks. And they're doing it all because, not, because they have to, right? The, I believe that the New York Times is under existential threat in a way that other industries are as well. And uh, anybody can respond when you're under existential threat, but not everybody is responding the same way. Many publications are having trouble where the New York Times is stepping up and doing well. The question for all of us is, how do we step up when our organization is not in the same amount of trouble as the New York Times? I do a lot of work in India and in India, they have very successful media or companies. And when you tell them that their same trouble, 25,000 people have lost jobs in America in journalism, that's going to happen here as well, they don't believe it because they're so successful. And uh, you might, some of you may have seen this George Clooney film called Good Night and Good Luck, set in America in the 50s. And the man he plays in the movie, Fred Friendly, always said that television makes so much money doing its worst there's no incentive to do its best. And in, in an Indian television in particular, if you, any of you are familiar with the Indian television, it's basically 10 people screaming at each other all day on the cable news. It's horrifying. And I once was on this guy Arnab's show on, uh, from New York, and he yelled at me for 30 minutes. It was, uh, I didn't have to say anything, so it was nice. 
but uh, in this idea that we must do something. So I'll give you two quick examples of other industries where they're doing something when they don't have to. And one is in Apple. You might know the Apple store in New York. Some of you have seen this kind of famous glass box on Fifth Avenue. You may have seen photographs of it. If you drive down Fifth Avenue today, that box is not there. Even though that's the first Apple store, the most successful Apple store, and per square foot, one of the most successful retailers in history, and it's not there. What they're doing is they broke down the glass and they're making it bigger, deeper, wider, better, at the height of their success breaking it down. How many of us would do that, right? Most journalists sat around and watched this wave of change come and we didn't respond. Another is what Google has done with Inbox. Are you folks familiar with this? Gmail, how many of you are on Gmail? Everybody's on Gmail and they created a separate team and created a tool called Inbox, which I use and I recommend everybody tries. You don't have to give up your Gmail and in fact, they're both kind of blending together. And again, at the height of their Gmail success, they said, what if we better change before somebody else eats our lunch? Some of you remember Hotmail, right? This was like the hottest email program in the world, and now almost nobody uses it. So how do we change in media? How do we keep that pressure to try new things is really important, and I think the New York Times is doing a really good job of that. Thank you very much, Sri, and thanks, Robbie, for the question. Any other questions? For James? <laughs> well, number two. Well, number two LinkedIn tip is to use the damn thing. Sorry, uh, you know I I talk so much about LinkedIn. People think I'm the world's greatest champion of LinkedIn. I say I'm not even the greatest Indian champion of LinkedIn. Who is the greatest Indian champion of LinkedIn? Does anybody know? The CEO of Microsoft is an Indian guy named Satya Nadella. He spent 26 billion dollars, so he's better be liking LinkedIn. I think all of us should use it more. It gives you incredible data that you can't get in any other system. So you take one of your tweets, post it inside LinkedIn, and see what happens. You, you, you find out how many people saw it, what kind of people saw it, what kind of news organizations looked at your posts. That's data that you don't get anywhere else easily on social. So please play with, the, play with LinkedIn. And I'm saying you don't need to create original content. Just take the same content and put it in. And number three tip, is people always ask me, who do you connect with on LinkedIn? What is your rule? And you should have your own strategy for every tool and platform that you're on. And my recommendation is to do what I think about. I say, I'll connect with anybody on LinkedIn who I already know, who I should know, and who I would like to know. So people I already know, people I should know, and people I'd like to know. That's why when anybody in this room connected with me, I didn't have to think about it. I want to connect with all of you, right? You want to think about what your strategy is on any of these tools at any time. We, we joked about this yesterday, that Facebook is for people you went to college with, Twitter is for people you'd like to go, you wish you went to college with, and LinkedIn is for people you'd like to get to know better and work with for, for a longer, longer time. So that's the way of, of thinking about LinkedIn. So I hope that answers your question, James. Thanks. I don't know a lot, but the good news about LinkedIn is they don't tell you how many connections they have. The original sin of social media is the follower count, right? By having those counts, we talked about this already, by saying 1,000 followers, 100,000 followers, everybody tries to game the system. It became a currency. And whenever something's a currency, people will try to fake it, steal it, 
uh, lie about it, and that's what you saw. In America, lots of journalists lost their jobs because they bought followers. Please never do that. Right? It's kind of crazy, but people do things like that. So really work on it and, and build it organically. That's important. Thank you, Sri, and thanks, James. Questions? Juni. Juni is one of my favorite former students. Wow. <laughs> and then I should also point out there's another former student here who has, who, his name in parts of the world is like being named Elvis Presley because his name is Zakir Hussain, and Zakir Hussain is the world's most famous tabla player. And he's also a journalist here in Singapore. So Zakir, <laughs> if you would wave, please. Yeah, there you go. Thanks, Sri. Thanks, Vera. Uh, my name is Lau Juni from the World Association of Newspapers and News Publishers. Sri, <laughs> um, yes, uh, Facebook has undergone many, many algorithm changes. Uh, and uh, the latest move about maybe six to eight months ago was the pivot away from publishers, which caused a lot of consternation. I remember one year ago here, uh, there were six countries that were picked out for a, sort of a, a news feed within Facebook. And I, I remember Cambodia was one of them. And I, um, it was you know, quite a shock to the Cambodian news publishers because they relied so much on Facebook to drive their traffic. What sort of advice do you have? I know tweaks have been uh, made since then. That news feed uh, tab has been taken away because it was so unpopular. But still, you know, we've, I think uh, everyone here who, who actually has a newsroom and you know, trying to drive traffic to their sites using Facebook has experienced that, that fall in traffic. So what sort of uh, advice do you have? Thank you. Great question. And I think we have to understand that these social media platforms are not all thinking about us all the time, right? That they're not there to help us. They're not our best friends. We treated them like our best friends, but they're not. They're businesses that want to make money for their shareholders and their owners, and that's what they're doing. And I think us, as media companies, we rely too much on them. They were a crutch for us, and we, they were an addiction. And the addiction has resulted in the world we see today, where any change in the algorithm means we get in trouble, and we lose, our, uh, we lose numbers right away. So I have a couple of thoughts on what you can at least try to think about a framework on what to do. The other part is about Facebook and Twitter and all of these platforms, that they don't understand the news business the way we think they do. And I know there are people from those companies here and all of that, or maybe watching this video later. Um, all I would say is that we, as people in the media, need to be uh, thinking about ways in which we can improve our own work and own our traffic rather than just relying on whatever the algorithm spits out at you. And if we don't do that, then we will pay the price, as we've done repeatedly. That wasn't the first time it changed. The solution to that particular problem is that we should all be better at our own social media. Most organizations have outsourced the social media to a millennial in the newsroom and said, OK, this, you, you do it. And there are senior journalists who don't do any of it or don't understand it. And therefore, what we need is everybody in the newsroom using social, working on it, and understanding and making it part of their job to use it. That doesn't mean you have to turn into a crazy Twitter person, but you have to be somebody who understands it and use it. If you don't do it, you'll see what, what is exactly uh, has happened. When they've reduced the power of the brand and gone to individuals, one of the things we did with a news organization in New York is we said, we found out that most people in news organizations aren't following their own news organization on social. Think about that, that we can't get our own staff to follow us for our own stories, but we want some lady 
100 miles away to read every post we're doing. So what does that mean? That means let's A, start by everybody following what we're doing and everyone sharing what we're doing. Share your own work. Don't rely on the algorithm. Don't rely on the social media manager. Don't rely on someone else. We have to own our own audience, our own traffic. We have to be responsible for that. And there are some people in the room I know listening to me right now who are not at all interested in this because they think that it should all just happen. And there was a time when it just happened, right? You did your journalism, and then there was an entire machinery that would put it on trucks and print it or put it on TV and get it out there. Now you have to have a role to play in that. And the better you can be at it, the better you're going, your whole entire organization can lift if everybody participates. And the other thing that we also saw in the last few years is what happened with, the, with all of these companies not understanding social media, I mean, social media companies that don't understand social media and don't understand the news, that's why you have fake news, that's why you have uh, trolls, and you have President Donald Trump. He understood social media better than all of these people. Now, they have admitted they were wrong and they're working on it, but it's almost too late, right? When what has happened in America and happened in other elections around the world, it's a crisis, and a crisis of confidence that we're, uh, Facebook is now offering training in how to fight the election, fake news, and all of that. It's great, but we want even more, and they have to own the problem as well. Thanks, Sri, and thanks, Juni, for the really good question. Any more questions? Carol? Hi, I have two questions, Sri. Um, the first one uh, relates to your earlier work as Chief Digital Officer for um, the city of New York. You mentioned Trump in your earlier response, and I'm just thinking, it, well, governments around the world are trying their best, right? Um, learning new ropes and trying to figure out what is the best way to reach out to different constituents, including the very first target group you mentioned, the millennials. So how do you think um, government's usage of social media has evolved in the past few years? What's, what are governments still not doing right and what needs to be done? That's my first question. Now, my second question has more to do with um, the mindset. Be it governments, um, corporate entities, or even news media agencies, I think there is oftentimes a conundrum, right? Um, a struggle between how much, to, how much new things, new technologies to embrace, and how much of what seems to have worked, you know, to give up, right? So, so do you notice that conundrum in the various types of organizations that you work with? And what is your advice to them? Sure. Thank you. Great, great questions. And uh, two so I'll talk about the first one, which was about the cities. So when I joined the city of New York, I spent lots of time looking at the social media. We had 250 social media accounts coming out of the city of New York. And uh, the first thing we did was we put everybody on Slack, which is a, is, is Slack popular? Anybody here using Slack? Raise your hand, a few of you. So Slack is a kind of email killer and great in organizations so that you can share information without doing it all on email. And uh, what we noticed was that the stories we were telling were sometimes really good and sometimes really poor. And improving the storytelling skills, the visuals of every department, about 80 departments in the city of New York, uh, getting them better and stronger in their storytelling. The other thing was, as a 
uh, as a organization that's sharing information, you also have to know when to share. The most important thing we started doing was shutting down all the social media feeds when a police officer is shot. Unfortunately, this happens fairly often in New York. And so when that happens, it doesn't make sense for the parks department to say, we have a new exhibit, come please see this. It looks dumb, right? Like at that moment, or there's a terrorist, some, something is happening. So just that ability to shut down everyone and say no one's going to post except the police department and the mayor until we solve this crisis. That was a big insight for all of us. Like that matters. Like we're always thinking, how do we overshare? How do we do stuff? But sometimes it's about what you don't share and what you don't post. So that's an example of uh, of what what cities need to do. They need to be more transparent. They need to be more um, accepting of the fact that when you have a touch point with the government, it's typically not a pleasure. <laughs> it's often a, a pain, especially in New York. I know. In, in Asia, things are much smoother in many countries, and especially in Singapore. But in uh, other places, it's certainly not like that. And so I would urge you to kind of think about that process. And are there ways in which you can, uh, if, you're, if you're dealing with the city or you're part of the city you know, or, or the government structure, thinking about how you reduce the pain of, of what happens. And the other question was about how do you do the things you're doing right and then add new skills and new, new ways. Is that, Carol, was that roughly what you were, you were talking about? So I want to use a term that I love that was coined by one of my colleagues uh, at Columbia. And the, the term is called tra-digital, T-R-A digital, tra-digital. So it's a combination of traditional and digital. And notice that the word traditional comes first. And what we uh, would talk about and what uh, this gentleman named Sig Gisler, who was the administrator of the Pulitzer Prizes, uh, he was, uh, when he was working, he was in his 70s already, and he and I would teach social media together. It was uh, very funny that because he's not a social media guy, but he understood what social media can do better than almost anyone. And what he would say is that we want journalists who are really good at all the traditional aspects of journalism, the storytelling, the context, the um, their great phone directories with all their contacts, their ability to uh, connect with people, and then you need a digital overlay on that. And the digital overlay is data, analytics, um, uh, social media, visual storytelling, and if you combine the two, you're going to be really successful in the new world. So it's about your digital mindset as well as a digital skill set. Even if you don't have the skills, as long as you have the mindset, you can get a lot done. And that's what we need to do so that we're not alienating the other people. At the, at the Metropolitan Museum, we were really good with the, uh, with the older generation. So how do we keep the older generation coming into the museum while appealing to the younger people? And there were many different things we, we, were, we were playing with. The key was how do you stay relevant in, in a very noisy world with so much coming all the time. And I, I forgot to mention one trick that you can do on Facebook to help your own organization, which you may or may not have seen, called, fir, um, called See First. Have, has everybody done this? So you can designate up to 30 individuals or, off, or, or business companies as See First on your Facebook feed. So we're always complaining that the feed is curated in uh, Silicon Valley. So what you can do is, so let's say you find someone's 
uh, Facebook, right? Let's say you find um, Straits Times Facebook page. You can go there, and instead of saying follow, you can say see first. Then every, you'll see their posts before you see the other posts. And that way, you, don't, you can't complain that your Facebook is filled with bad or useless things because you can curate it right now. So again, if, if, if we're following each other on Facebook, I can just go in there, find her, and then hit see first. And imagine if, as part of your training for your staff, you'd made everybody do see first. Then they will see your own content. As I said, your own people are not seeing your own content, are not sharing it. So let's get everybody, if your newsroom is 50 people, 100 people, 200 people, see first really matters. And on a tangent on Facebook, if you haven't done it, please do the legacy contact. Have you seen this? This allows you to give someone control of your Facebook when you die. And you'll say, boy, this really, why are you talking about this? And the reason is that I organized two funerals in, nine, in 2016, one for a journalist who was 67 and one for a 14-year-old girl. And they both did not have legacy contact. And their families were, at the worst moment of their lives, made to feel even worse because they didn't have this. So I urge all of you, please go into Facebook and create legacy contact. You can Google it, find out how to do it. Anyone here has done it already? One person, right? So three requests. One, please do it. Number two, please warn your friend or family member before you do it, because otherwise they'll think you're dying and that's why you're reaching out to them. <laughs> I've had sisters call up and crying, saying, "Are you my, my, I thought my brother was dying. And number three, please don't make me your Facebook legacy contact. <laughs> There's always some smart aleck in the room who says, oh, you care so much? Okay, you do it, right? So please do not do that. But Let's see, how many of you here will do this for your families? How many of you will help your families by making the legacy contact? How many of you? Okay, no, notice, okay, so just, just, just to show you what happens, right? Few of you raised your hand. Even these people are lying, they won't do it, right? <laughs> Why? Because we don't do things, right? We expect that everything we say on television or do in print, everybody will do, but we don't do it. So I told you something that will help your family, your wife, your father, your mother, at the worst moment when you're dead, to make them give them some relief, and you still won't do it. That's just the way we are as people. And so that's what you have to remember. Just putting something on TV or putting, the, even here, you know, I'll check if you do it, but you may not do it because we don't believe in this. I promise this it won't be you. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yes, maybe we'll, we'll let her go first. First, are you born after 1986? Uh, after 1986, yes. <laughs> 1997, I was born. Okay, millennial. 97. So, yeah, 87. So I have been working for like a TV for seven years. And the problem for TV, I'm from Thailand, is people watch TV less they switch to social media. But the problem is how can we make the money from social media? Because people think like, I don't want to pay for that. And the second question is like, um, the presenter that is famous in social media, I mean, from TV to social media, as a journalist, from my perspective, they are not journalists, they're like an entertainer, they overacting. They, has, they have less experience on the ground, but they can tell a good story 
like they can summarize the stuff. And people share the content from that kind of people more than a real journalist. That's a big thing in Thailand now. Thank you. Yeah, well, the second part I can just say that uh, having done television myself, and I know there are people here who've done TV, that television is a performance, right? And in some countries we use the word newsreader because they're just reading the news. They're not like necessarily journalists. We've had a lot of cases in America of people who were doing something else and then decided to become uh, newsreaders. You know, they couldn't get an acting job, so they became newsreaders. But, uh, but they're also obviously very serious people who do television and are real journalists. And any chance we can get to promote those people rather than the folks who are, you know, Miss America and then become a social media, become someone uh, reading the news. But the first question is the most important question that we haven't discussed, right? How do you, and I'm sure they'll be coming up during the rest of the day. How do you make money on all of this stuff? And you have to make money. In America, the reason why those 25,000 people lost their jobs is in part because they didn't know anything about the business side of media. The idea was that somebody else will worry about it, we don't have to worry about it. And they just sat there and everybody saw the world change and they were devastated and they lost their jobs. And that's not their fault. It's the fault of the understanding in American media that it's all about the, the separation between church and state, or you say editorial and business. And how do we understand more about journalism and how money is made and take our own ownership of this problem? And you're right, people, you, it's very hard to make money on social media. The social media companies are making money, but how do we make money on it? So what you have to do is to uh, I think use television, and if you're, you were asking specifically about television, use it as a tune-in medium where you can use social to promote things that are happening so that people will watch at the right time and building that audience. But that doesn't mean, which I see a lot of television journalists do, which is my, my, my story is coming up at 10 p.m., two hours, one hour, please watch, please watch. Nobody wants to see that, right? Are you engaging our audience? Are you talking to them and responding, like a lot of us want to be successful on Instagram, and we post something on Instagram and say, oh, I wonder why nobody's liking my content. Who gives us the right to be these people who are gonna be successful, right? If we don't use the community, we don't post in it, we don't respond, we don't participate in the social media. Most journalists are using it as a broadcasting medium, not as a connecting medium. And social media works in, in that case, when you are connecting with people uh, and, and making a, a really valuable opportunity for you to make that connection. So I would think about, uh, think about that, but there is no answer about this. And one of the things that I want, an example I gave yesterday is one of my clients is called The Wrap, W-R-A-P. It's a Hollywood hard news, serious publication in, uh, that was run by a former New York Times reporter who took her skill set as a Hollywood reporter and became a journalist. She has 55 journalists working for her. She's profitable. And she's never going to be the New York Times again, but she has a 50-person newsroom. So I think there are going to be more organizations like that, where you have a deep dive on specific subject area, and you can build success off of that. Talking about profitability and attention spans, etc., um, it's been really difficult. People always say um, the younger generation and a lot of the consumers are more interested in soft news. Mm -hmm. Soft news sells. Hard news doesn't sell, except if Trump tweets something in the middle of the night. Um, 
what's your your advice to to the newsrooms in in really trying to get the audience attention as you said the scarces uh, scarces uh, what what was that quote earlier on uh, attention span yeah yeah human, that it's human the, attention. yeah this, this, the scarcest resource is human attention and how do we how do we get that so I think uh, I mean, I, I mentioned a little bit about the skim as an example of young people caring about the news. They care about things like the environment and they care about um, various aspects of their lives. In, in, you could say even in more ways than the older people did because we're the ones who did all the damage to the environment and left this world for them in, in how it's all, it's all gone down. So I think that uh, if you write it in a way that they're interested in, you put it in context that they're interested in, people will care. But uh, you're right, there's still too much celebrity news and uh, way too much of that, and, and that's a problem. But as I was saying, in this particular case with the rap, they're covering celebrity news, but in a different way, covering it like journalism and not like, you know, uh, uh, like a fan covering, for covering that news. Okay. Lydia? And then we'll come to Juni again. And then I have Hi, something I'm Lydia Lim from yeah. The Straits Times. Uh, Shri, can I just follow up on what you had said earlier about getting the whole newsroom to use and try to understand social media better rather than just outsourcing it to one millennial or one group of millennials who may have, who may not have very much influence in the newsroom to begin with. So I just wanted to, you know, tap your brain on culture change because I think that's very important for newsrooms and actually many... Uh, legacy organizations, um, and you must have experiences in the Met also, for example. I mean, how do you actually get that process going? Yeah, thank you. The uh, digital disruption, we think about it in newsrooms, but it's also happening in universities. It's happening in museums and places like that as well. And I'll give you a couple of thoughts about the museum that kind of goes back to your, you know, talking about media as well. Uh, you can't have everybody change. That's one of the things I learned. And at the Met, I, instead of, you know, we, instead of, there are 100 curators at the Met. And if all 100 wanted to change, we'd be dead because there would be, <laughs> there'd be too much. So instead, we went to individuals who were the leaders, the influential people within the newsroom, and we brought them along to work with us on projects that matter to them, right? I think a lot of leaders, a lot of top people will force senior people to do things that they're not interested in. And this made a big difference by, so for example, we worked on a great project with the head of European paintings at the Met. So you can imagine how senior that person was, but he understood that this would help his collection and we did some fantastic work with him. So like that, you don't need everybody. You just need some of the people and then others will follow as they see that. Because if you do it only with the already converted, right? If you do it with the digital people, Others won't follow. In fact, that's what happened to me at Columbia, uh, Zakir and Junino, some of these people, that I would not be taken seriously 20 years ago when we talk about this stuff because, oh, that's three, the digital guy is just blabbering on as I'm doing now. And when things started changing, then it became like, oh my God, we all have to pay attention to this. But we often have seen that the best folks who can help you are the influential senior people who have made the change themselves. And that's what I think we all need in what we're, uh, in what we're doing. Juni? No. 
I'm glad Tanchi brought up the point about uh, sustainability, uh, about, about uh, payments and how to, to monetize the audience. It is critical for, of course, long-term sustainability of all our newsrooms that, that uh, we find other ways of revenue streams. It's, it's something we're going to talk about later in the afternoon, but I wanted to tap uh, Shri's brain as well, since he's not my panelist. Um, uh, sustainability of the media is such a big question. It's, it's what the senior management always, uh, you know, uh, stay awake at night uh, thinking about, uh, as you mentioned, you know, trying to influence the, the senior uh, management to understand these changes as well. In the old days, I think let's go back to first principles. The old days, everybody just bought a newspaper. We remember those days very well. Uh, and I know Sri subscribes uh, avidly to the New York Times. It comes to his door every Sunday. He does the read-along on, on his uh, every Sunday morning, if you'd like to tune in on Facebook Live. But uh, how do we get the millennials and, and beyond, the Gen Zs, to, do, to make that a habit? Um, not, not to buy the newspaper because you know, everybody, everything's going digital. They don't read a, a paper product anymore. But to subscribe, that, that is, a, is a big question. When I, when I talk to publishers in, in, in around Asia, they're terrified of charging. They just don't dare do it. They say, no, uh, we'll have readers fleeing <laughs> you know, our, our, our sites if you erect a paywall. But it's so critical. How do we bring that newspaper subscription mindset to uh, digital? Um, that's just one revenue stream. Of course, it's not going to be the only revenue stream. There are others, and we'll talk about that later this uh, afternoon. But, but how do we change the reader mindset? I, I know, you know New York Times, Guardian, they have such plaintive pleas on their websites very eloquently. But you know, are there other ways uh, of convincing the reader to pay? Sure, thank you. That's a great question, and I think we'll end on that. Uh, before, before, after I answer this, I'll go back on stage there to show you my social media success formula, which I saved for the very end. So we'll do that, and we'll, we have one minute and 45 seconds to do the whole thing. So we're going to do it fast. Uh, it, to your question about subscriptions, I think it's, it's key. The good news is that young people today live in a subscription world. Netflix, and Spotify, and other tools, they're used to subscribing to things. Email newsletters are subscriptions, so they're used to that. The key is, can we apply and show them the value of what we're providing is as valuable as, or is it a quarter of your price of, you know, your Netflix subscription or any of these other tools, any, any, any of the other things that people are subscribing to? Uh, there was a time when we thought all music would always be free because of the Napster and things like that, and then we've seen that you know, it's still too low, and musicians in the room will know, or if, if, you, if you have friends or musicians, they're making almost no money from the streaming, but people are paying. The artists may not be making the money, but people are paying. So are there ways in which we can get that subscription mindset to young people? I would push on that, and what, can, what do you get for that? Like, that's one of the things I'm trying as well. I launched a membership program for my work just to see how do you get people to pay and renew on a regular basis, monthly or yearly, and it's not easy. And that's why I, I have great respect for the circulation departments that knew how to do this, but those skills are old. I'd also say to everybody uh, something we talked about yesterday. We talk about retraining the journalists. We don't talk about retraining our advertising team, our circulation team, all these other people who are part of the business. And so you have the old, so what happens is the newsroom creates a new product. It's great. We know it will work, or we hope it'll work. We'll experiment, but the advertising department will say, "Oh, we this nobody will buy this. No advertiser is interested." So we have to lead our business side colleagues, and we have to lead our advertisers and sponsors. We need to 
bring them to the newsroom, show them what we're doing, and get them excited about this. So just in the interest of time, if I may, oops, sorry, I'm just going to go up here. And if you can switch, folks, very quickly, um, I'm just going to uh, go back to my social media success formula, if I can show it to you here. Uh, stay for a second. No, uh, yeah, yeah, so okay, here we go. So this is uh, coming up here in one second. Uh, it's loading. Uh, so again, I just want to thank everybody while this comes up here. Uh, just uh, remind you that if you can connect with me on social, please do, or email me if you have any questions. I'm sorry that uh, I'm not, I'm leaving today, so I'm not here for the entire conference, but I will be around at lunchtime and a little bit after. If I can help you with anything, please let me know. And I hope it doesn't take me 30 years to come back to uh, Singapore. Um, and here is my social media success formula. You might want to take a photograph of it. And we're going to uh, say these words out loud together as if we're in a church on Sunday. Uh, led by a Hindu priest, so it's a, like a weird church, okay? But I'm from New York, so anything is possible. So we're going to say these words out loud. Are you ready? Are you ready? Yes. Okay, we're going to start with the word helpful. We're going to do practice and then just go down the list as we do this. So let's do the word helpful together. Ready? One, two, three. Helpful. Come on, guys. You can do better than that, okay? I know you were uh, just warming up for the rest of the conference, so we want to get you pumped up for the next panel. So here we go. Ready to start at the top and we just go down one at a time. <gasps> Help. Helpful. Louder. Can't hear you. Sing it, sister. Say it, brother. Louder. Hallelujah. Take me home, mama. Louder. Um. You've never been to a Hindu Catholic priest? That's what we do. That's how we do this, right? So I'm not saying all of your posts have to be all of these things, but all your posts have to be some of these things. And I'm going to focus on one word, and then we're going to step out here. That word is actionable. I know there's some lawyers in the room who are saying, ooh, that means we can sue somebody. That's not what actionable means in this context. It means how do we create great content that others want to take action and share? You know, you see people begging on social media, please post, please share, please share. The best content, the most viral content of all time, nobody said please share, right? Because the content was shareable and people wanted to share it. So please take action. I said the scarcest resource is human attention and you folks have given me an hour and a half of your attention. I'm incredibly grateful. Thank you very much, everybody.